From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld, a psychotherapist who specializes in addiction. Joey shares how he fell in love with the inner Torah, discusses how he introduces Jewish sources to a non-Jewish audience, and addresses how the Jewish community is doing with regard to confronting addiction. Plus, the rabbis discuss where they get their writing inspiration. How do they compartmentalize and avoid bringing work home? And what's the big news out of Rabbi Goldberg's garden? All this and more, Behind the Bima. Hello, Rabbi Moskowitz, Rabbi Brody. Welcome, everybody. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m., and that means it's time to go... Behind the Bima. Behind the Bima. You know, I really look forward to Wednesday nights. The weeks are chaotic and busy and stressful and... Uh, Hanging out with you guys, you know, the beauty of this platform is you can't see anybody else, so you don't really know are people listening, not listening, but we have fun nonetheless, and I always enjoy our conversation and catching up and our banter, so it's good to be together again. And I want to actually come right off the bat with... That's right. I've got some breaking news coming right off the top of the show tonight. Very, wow. very exciting. Very exciting news for you tonight. Are you ready? It's a good thing that you're both sitting down for this news. Pulling it out excited. early, by the way. I'm oh very excited about it. I have to be honest with you. It's a big, big, big day for me and my whole family. This, so guys, some some of you know that um, I'm not announcing Elia. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, um, say can you give me a heads up if you ever make that announcement? No, <laughs> I'm not going to say it's as exciting as that, but I will tell you it's exciting. Ooh. So I've spoken about before that during Corona, my daughter Esty and I planted a garden in our backyard, and tonight I ate the red pepper from the garden. And I have to tell you, it's a very special Sorry, feeling, Phil. and we're going to talk to Rob Joey about this because it's a very mystical feeling to plant something and take a seed, a nothing, a garnished, negligible, and you put it into fertile soil in the ground, and you nurture it, and you watch it grow, and you pluck it, my daughter plucked it, and it's cut, and you eat it. I said to my wife, we both know the experience now of giving birth to something. I was going to say, both, it's called children. <laughs> we've, both, we've both carried something, right. and we both know the experience of birthing it. And um, I didn't go over comments. so well. The comments are I didn't go over so well. Right <laughs> exactly. You don't I'm know. I'm in trouble. You don't yeah, that, know. You that did not go over so well with her, but I will tell you that it was an amazing, amazing experience. Is to you put a seed, a wee little sapling. We did get a head start from Home Depot. Thank you, Home Depot. But you put that in the ground, and I'll tell you why it's particularly meaningful for me today. Because I saw a quote earlier today in an article from Tim Ferriss about the time he almost committed suicide, and he had a quote in there. He says it's um, like a Cherokee quote. I googled it. It's unclear whoever said it. It really doesn't matter. The quote is a fantastic quote, which relates directly to um, to this feeling, to this concept, and it is, they tried to bury us, they didn't know that we were seeds. They tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. Sometimes someone knocks you down, they try to bury you, but they don't realize you're a see seed and you're about to sprout and you're about to grow. And it's really all coming together tonight because ate the pepper for the first time, saw that quote today, they tried to bury, but if you're a seed, all they're doing by burying you is making sure that you blossom and grow. And tonight's Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh Shvat. And we've begun the countdown to Tu B'Shvat. And that's all about seeds blossoming, growing, regenerating, coming out of the darkness of winter, believing in the bright future. And hopefully we're coming out of this dark winter called Corona and there's a bright future of blossoming and growing. So the pepper was was, was beautiful. It really... Uh, 
it's hard to eat it. I understand the mitzvah of Bikurim. You take the first thing that you got and you don't even get to eat it. You bring it to Yerushalayim. You got to give it to God. You say, God, everything belongs, even if all first, they belong to you. So I'm not saying I'm a farmer. I'm not saying I'm not. But I'm saying I relate a little <laughs> bit more to the concept of Bikurim. Well, and it's today, a big how, night. Now how, big much of that was, how much of that was because you wanted to try the pepper? And how much of that was because you were anticipating the article you were going to write once you were able to taste the pepper? It's, it's a great question. My children have said all along that the only reason that we have a garden is so I have drusha material. And I'm not going to lie. I've referenced the garden. I've used it. I have gone to the garden and I will continue to go to the garden. And maybe it began as drusha material, but it's turned into a love affair. And um, it needs more It needs more work to garden. It definitely needs more work, a little love. There's so many lessons about a garden. I mean, this revolves uh, planting and and building about raising children, but you know, sunlight and air it needs attention, nurturing. But that's not neither here nor there. I just wanted to share that's that a, exciting. That's that'll be the next the next cover of Mishpacha will be about planting a garden. Oh boy, but, I think we're I think we're past that. <laughs> Dude, one second, it was today's daf. Don't forget. I don't mm. know which you had. Rabbi Rosner brings in if you bring something to the base of Migdash, that's not part of the shiva minim for Bikurim. Right. Does it become hectic? Right. Right, okay. isn't that? So yes. you bring your pepper. Is it does it Perfect. take? Perfect. Do you do you have you ever grown something? Do you either of you relate to that experience? Well, so for me, it's not planting. I, I planting and I don't go well together. But but there is something called the IKEA effect, where mm. when you are involved in investing in what you're building, it means a lot more to you, right? So because we build alongside IKEA, we value that more than if I just went to a store and bought it. So the reason why you like sure. that pepper tonight was not just because it was a delicious pepper, because you invested your energy into that. So I have right. experienced that. Like when I get one of those things from Ikea or a different store and I'm building it, I feel like, you know, I'm like manly at that moment in time. So that bookshelf, like that, that's part of me afterwards. Like that's a different sure. type of bookshelf than if I just get it delivered. That's that's the Rav Dessler, the Rav Dessler, the whole word on, on Chesed, the idea that um, parents love children more than children can ever love parents. Sure. Because when we invest a piece of ourselves into something, we love it. As an extension of ourselves, so I I love that pepper. I'm not I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to say it. Now, if I love it, why did I eat it? Maybe I love myself even more. But it was a struggle. I, I really wanted to not eat it, but then it would just rot and disappear. So, I was really excited to eat that pepper. Now, by the way, I did not actually see the pepper come from the garden into the salad I ate when I just got home. It's possible it's like a Publix Ooh. pepper, and my fa- and my family just wants me to what? feel really good. But I'm pretty what? sure it's a pepper. I, I tasted the love of the garden in that pepper. And um, what do you think about that quote? Any any reaction to that quote? They tried to bury us. They didn't realize we were seeds. I love that quote. I think it's an amazing quote. It's a great it's quote, right? Quote. Yeah, it's a great one. Basically, so you can you see can yourself back, as a victim. You can bounce back, right. You can see yourself as a victim or you could view that as part of the growth process. I actually wrote about that in my weekly article this week. Anyone can mm. welcome to read it. But the whole notion that the obstacle becomes the path, right? That whatever adversity you're facing actually becomes your path to to greatness, your path to success, your mission, your calling, your purpose. Right, for sure. Tell us more about the article. What inspires your article? Let's let's talk about this for a moment. We're going to bring up Joey Rosenfeld on shortly. It's a lot of excitement. I want to thank our sponsors tonight, Nini and Donnie Ross for their Fuashlema of a good friend of so many of us, Yaliora Basara and Yerachmiel Daniel Bentova. Basha the Shabush have a complete, speedy, painless, fast, and whole recovery. Rafu Shlema, complete recovery. And also sponsored in honor 
of the Manal, the principal, the Rosh Hashiva of DRS, a good friend of the show, Behind the Bima, a former guest, and a good friend of all of ours, Rabbi Yissi Kamenetsky, a longtime friend of each of us personally and of our show. Uh, it's really great that it was sponsored in his honor. And again, they should have a Rafu Shlema. And a huge thank you to the Rosses for, for sponsoring. So we're going to bring our guest on in a moment, but let's talk about what, what motivates you. Do you ever have a writer's block? Do you hit a wall? Rabbi Moskowitz, you know, I've been writing for a bunch of years, um, although it's still each week is a new challenge and you're only as good as what you wrote recently. Um, you have taken up the writing trust me i know that the the hard way but you have taken up writing this year and during this pandemic and really it's more power to you hats off to you i'm not going to play the hats off to you but hats <laughs> off to you that you've taken up. tell us what that's been like that journey towards writing how is it different for you than speaking writing and how do you find inspiration each week and have you hit the wall of writer's block so it's interesting you have been encouraging me to write for many years and i've been reluctant and reticent to do so I find when you speak, it's engaging an audience. It's much more of a personal experience. And one of the reasons I was nervous about writing was because it felt like much more of a cold experience, right? I put down my words and I can't interact with the person who is reading it. And I didn't like that as much. In mm. retrospect, now that I've tried it, I love writing. I find it's a, it's a very different outlet than speaking, but I'm enjoying it immensely. Some right. weeks, as you know, you hit a total block, you're exhausted, nothing's coming to you, and you might repurpose an old drusha. Um, mm -hmm. Other weeks, just like a drasha, sometimes you're having a conversation with someone, sometimes you have an interaction and it sparks an idea in your head and you write about it. So that was this week. I had a conversation with someone last night um, and it occurred to me that that is what I wanted to write about this week. And so I put pen to paper, as they say, or my fingers to my keyboard. And uh, this morning I wrote an article about it that will be published in the BRS Weekly. Can't wait. Everybody should read it. We're actually talking about and uh, look forward soon. Uh, when we do our BRS Plus launch, the BRS Global Community, and making available to the people who are part of that global community a version of our weekly, which is just the articles. You don't need to know the yurt sites and the birthdays of our local members, but the things that apply more globally. We're really excited. And it includes articles by Rabbi Moskowitz. Or Rabbi Brody, what's holding you back from writing? When are you going to um, dictate <laughs> thoughts that can appear in an article? So first of all, i got a few things to say. But first of all, if anyone wants to see the articles, you know, Rabbi Goldberg, Rabbi Moscow, just go to Aish, which they're going to be soon going to be renaming HBRS, because basically <laughs> every article on there is from Rabbi Moskowitz, <laughs> Rabbi Goldberg. My wife went there last week. She had needed a Dvar Torah. And she's reading this. She's like, this is a great Dvar Torah. And she's, she had to tell, you know, someone uh, Dvar Torah. She says, this is Rabbi Goldberg. <laughs> she didn't even realize it. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm just saying. But listen, I once wrote an article. This goes back probably about seven, eight years ago. And I thought it was... Because something happened on an airplane. I was on an LL flight. I thought it would be a great article. So I said, you know what? Let me sit down. I even had Linda go edit it. I said, Linda, can you just do me a favor? I want to submit this article into this H right. website. Can you just edit it for me? So first of all, she, she had every sentence had a head of issues. But I sent it in. They wrote back and they said, listen, this is not really the type of article we, 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 need. we, we publish on this website. <laughs> that was the end of my writing career. But you should like, right, you know, every week, Rabbi Brody, you're having interactions with the greater Jewish community in our area. You're so devoted and dedicated to outreach, inspire yourself to inspire others. You have stories that would really inspire. And um, the same way story. I pushed Rabbi Moskowitz, I'm going to push you. And the truth is, you, like many other great writers out there, don't even have to be the one to write. You can really even voice note an idea and have somebody help you turn that into an article. But it add a lot to our weekly in terms of kind of... I would love that. Know, on the corner with Rabbi Brody, some interaction yeah, that week that you had with write. a fellow Jew. 
Avas Yisrael, love. So anyway, if we have any volunteers, if you are joining us on the many platforms we're streaming on right now, or you're listening to our podcast later, the number one podcast in Judaism, then reach out to us. Rabbi Berger is looking for a ghost writer. Well, we you had could, you could on who the show. We'll put your name on it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> do you remember when Ben Shapiro was on Behind the Bima, apolitically, but when he was on Behind the Bima, do you remember that he mentioned at his height he was writing, he was ghostwriting 10 articles a day. A day. Think about that. Rabbi Brody, he can write your articles. Yeah, so well, he's he the one that's from me. But if he's too busy, by the way, then if anyone else would like to volunteer, Rabbi Brody would love your help to take some of his thoughts and experiences and turn it into, into an article. You know, I'll just I'll close and, and bring on our guest who we are all so excited and waiting for by saying that I was once at a rabbinic conference and a rabbi was saying, you know, I hate it that my whole life revolves around looking for drusha material or article material and I can never just be. And I can't feel more the opposite. I think my life is like everyone else is living in black and white, black and white, and I'm living in, 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 in color because whether you're on a plane, whether you're at a cafe, whether you're in a conversation, whatever you're doing, you're like, how can I extract a lesson? Where's the depth in this? What can I share from this? And I don't think that distracts or detracts from it. I think it enhances it in so many ways. Again, with the cynicism of friends and family who will sometimes say, is this for a drusha? Is it, am I going to be in a drusha right now? But it's really empowering way of, no, of living. But, but let's be honest, agree. right? Because we, we like being honest and we're behind the beam now. I love it. Writing is a totally different genre. I've found, oh my gosh. Um, I've found it enormously. No, I'll tell you what that is. That's a drusher. That's a drusher right there. No, I'll tell you what that is. We just caught something in the house. I'm just saying. Oh, that was um, a trap that just went off? That was a trap. A trap just went off. <laughs> Whoa. Hold on. Breaking news. Should I play the breaking news again? There, there is a caught animal in the Moskowitz house right now. My wife is wow. going to freak out. So, um, wow. anyways, so let's be honest. It is enormously stressful sometimes, right? Right. Yes. I mean, it's enormously stressful sometimes when you're sitting there on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday, whenever you sit down mm. to write and you have that writer's block. Do you ever have that, Rabbi Goldberg? Do you ever hit that and, and you're just like that All stress, the time. The anxiety? All the time. Adam Grant, who, who I'm a big fan of, has a book called The Originals, I think. In it, he talks about, um, I believe it's in there, the notion of creativity on demand. Creativity used to be, you know, you think about the past, like some brilliant creative author, artist, they'd go to some some seashore community and spend the summer clearing their mind and they'd be struck by creativity and they'd introduce some genius. And now we live in a world that's like, you need a post, you need an article, you need to put out a speech, you need a, it's like on demand, creativity on demand. Everything else in life is on demand. Creativity should be on demand as well. And creativity doesn't work on demand. So um, I, I want to bring out Joey so we can pick this conversation up another time. But maybe next week, Rabbi Moskowitz, what are the things that you need to get creative? And there's, I don't know if anyone listened recently, Tim Ferriss interviewed, uh, interviewed Seinfeld about this and he talked about that. Amazing. How do you schedule time for creativity? What goes into writing? What's the environment? What's the desk have to look like? What is, there's a lot that goes into the setting that puts you in a creative mood and a creative place. Um, I'd be really curious to learn what does and, that and for is you. There, I'm just curious also, is, is there a difference between writing your drusha every week and writing your article? Because you do yeah. write, you do write. Yeah, so because a very right? different experience, a very different Absolutely. experience. But, but I'll tease one thing for me, and I'm curious yours, cleanliness. I cannot have clutter when I sit down to write. I need my desk clean. I need wherever I am to be clean and neat and organized. And then I have the mental space and capacity to write. Well, we're happy to report that as of a minute ago, your house is a little bit more clean. So <laughs> you, are, you are in a great position to be able to write. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. We are so excited this evening to welcome 
the one and the only, the great Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld. Rabbi Rosenfeld, Rabbi Joey, thank you so much for being with us and for willing to be your willingness to go behind the bima. Sure, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you. So Rabbi Joey, I really want to jump right in. Um, to tell our audience, and you know, you're, you're not a stranger to many. There's a whole world who follows you. There's a lot of excitement on social media today that you would be joining us as our guest. They know the work you're doing in St. Louis in the addiction community as a psychotherapist, as a therapist, um, bringing a really unusual, borderline, unique perspective of mysticism, Kabbalah, of Jewish thought, even to a non-Jewish clientele. Um, the Sfarim, if you're in the articles, um, a, a, a recent uh, mishpacha uh, feature, that, that talked all about, but so, but share with us your background. How did you get to that, right? You weren't born with a long beard and a Kabbalist. You weren't necessarily on the trajectory. When your high school career guidance person met with you, they probably didn't say, Joey, I see, I see mysticism in your future. You are on track to be a great Kabbalist. So tell our audience, tell us about your background, about how you got here, and about what positioned you to be where you are, that you're, you're changing the world with your new vocabulary and new perspective. Well, without agreeing to 95% of the, the phrases you just threw at me, I, I will certainly try and answer the question. Um, so first and foremost, I've been blessed with, with four factors that, that kind of influenced my life to where I was moving towards, and then an added factor that allows me to continue from where I'm at now. Um, those factors are family, uh, my parents and my siblings, my brothers, um, my friends, my rebellion in my high school in particular, and the community that I lived in. So mm -hmm. I grew up in Woodmere, and I went to Halb throughout my life, and I went to DRS High School, um, where each and every year, my rebellion, Rabbi Emerson, uh, Rabbi Yudin, Rabbi Grala, Rabbi Storch, Rabbi Kohn, Rabbi Kamenetsky, the Menahel, um, all of them were, were remarkable influences on me, um, in particular because I needed that influence. You know, I was certainly not a a good student by by any by any imagination, um, but but because I I struggled scholastically or behaviorally, um, so I was able to kind of get extra time with the with the rabbis, and I was able to get insight with regards to how to move towards the right direction. Mm. Um, but did my, you say? Can I interrupt you for one second? Did you say you struggled scholastically, academically, or also behaviorally? I, I said both. I said both. So it was it was certainly both, um, but nothing too overwhelming. Just uh, just aware of the struggle of kind of the the normative high school scholastic experience was not what I was doing, um, right. and at the same time I was influenced. My father brought me up on on incredible music. You know, the first concert that I ever went to was an Allman Brothers concert with my dad at the Beacon. Um, so oh, from the very wow. beginning, I was interested in kind of different. Uh, expressions of, of creativity, of music, of insight. Um, but I was always interested. I was always interested in depth. Uh, at that stage, whether it was reading Where the Wild Things Are numerous times or trying to grapple with the, uh, the injustice of Alexander and the No Good, Very Bad, Horrible Day or, or the hopeful attitudes of, oh, the places you'll go. Um, and my older brother, I was able to be exposed to different teachings and different uh, thinkers at the time and different trends in music and movies. So from the beginning, I was always interested in, in something more than what I was offered. And so while it was certainly not expressed towards mysticism by any means, it was 
a movement for more or owed mm. or something more than what was present, which I believe is the very same impulse that drives a person into kind of panemia satora. So while content-wise it was very different, but the form of my experience was somewhat of the same pulsation. It was a desire for more. Um, but with good friends and with, with good teachers and, and living within the vicinity of Rick Weinberger, Schlita, I was really able to kind of figure out how those drives could could propel me to Eretz Yisrael, which is really where I figured out the language that, that spoke to me. There is so much I want to unpack right now, and this is so exciting. Um, I don't even know exactly which direction to go in because there's so much, but let's start with this. First of all, I think there's an enormous lesson that comes out of what you just said, which is not every child that's struggling academically or behaviorally is because they're a troublemaker. What you described, and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and maybe help us unpack it further, is that it's not because you were living so shallow and superficial, it's because you were craving something so much deeper that it presented itself as um, academic or behavioral challenges, when really all along it was a craving and ambition for more. And what a message to educators, to parents, to all of us in terms of our, our tolerance and how much we should try to understand what's driving what looks like rebelliousness or misbehavior in people and to understand where it's actually coming from. So let's start with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rav Kook, Schuse Yogan Aleinu, has a famous uh, mimer called Neshamo Shel Olam HaTohu, the souls of the worlds of chaos. And in fact, Rav Tzvi Yehuda, in trying to find the sources that inspired his father's um, inspiration, so to speak, without sources, Rav Tzvi Yehuda and his Talmidim were trying to root it in text. Rav Kook speaks of certain neshamos that emerge into the world, and I'm not speaking of myself, but a general kind of zeitgeist of, I believe, our generation, of neshamos who are dissatisfied with what is presented to them, both religiously, ethically, morally, even philosophically speaking. And that dissatisfaction results in misbehavior of, of chutzpah, of brazenness, and unwillingness to kind of get in line. And what Rav Kook does in the way that only Rav Kook was capable of doing is he reveals that that, that brazenness, that chutzpah, of, of our generation is not because we're not interested. It's because we want more. We have tasted something, so to speak, that this world does not offer and which forces a person to seek out insight and intensity in other places. And at first glance, that looks like a person is just not following suit. But in truth, it's, a, it's an impulse that is born within the spirit that desires something that the external nature of all things in whatever category a person is exposed to, to, to break the ground open to seek out something underneath. So I, I don't want to go in this direction completely now because there's so much more to talk to you about, but it's worth unpacking more uh, or investigating more. What, what should teachers particularly be looking for in the student who presents that way, who's acting out or rebellious or unsuccessful, but it's really not driven by um, some deficiency. It's really driven by by this quest for more, mm -hmm. how could they identify it and what should they do with it? Teachers who have 20, 23 students in a class who just need to get material taught probably don't have what it takes in order to be able to interact with that student who is exhibiting that, that, that what you describe as that quest for ode, the more. So that's worth coming back to. But I want to skip to something different. Take us behind the bima with Joey Rosenfeld, who goes from a student struggling academically to a published, prolific author and speaker. What went on and what clicked in you? What is still clicking in you? 
And I relate to this a little bit. My mother loves to say that I was not a great student and I didn't succeed academically and they had to chase me to write a paper or study for a test and I now act on a deadline to write every week and to speak every week. And my mother chooses to be humored by that, which is a healthy way. <laughs> but what what clicked in you? How did you go from the struggling student to the really, really a scholar, an academic, a published and prolific author? Mm-hmm. Um, so first and foremost, it was love and encouragement, uh, unconditional love, um, which I received from my home, from my parents, from my grandparents, from my siblings, um, from my spouse, from my teachers. So that was number one. Um, Instead of punitive approaches and the draconian path, which seeks to force the person who is not in line to kind of align themselves, rather I was given space to kind of do my thing. Um, And and there were various individuals at certain points, a story I always like to recall, it could bring me to tears because I didn't know that he was my Rebbe yet, but when my father was kind of overwhelmed with the dysfunction, he, he had spoken to Rav Weinberger, Shlita, and Rav Weinberger gave a drasha, and the drasha was based on a Sfas Emes, I believe. I was dragged to shul with my father, um, and I went to Eish Kodesh, and, and Rav Weinberger gave a drasha about how when Yaakov Avinu arrived at the well, that there was a boulder covering the well. And what the Sfas Emes describes is that each of us are a well, and each of us have flowing waters and, and what to offer and, and something unique, that specific point that we come to this world to bring out. And very often it looks like the boulder is covering it up and a person assumes there's nothing underneath. But the Svasema says in the words of Rav Weinberger is that the Iker Chizuk is to simply move the, the boulder away and allow a person to be TV, allow a person to be natural allow a person to express themselves the way that their neshama is speaking to them. Um, so there was that. And the most important thing I did in Eretz Yisrael, I went to OJ for two years. I had wonderful rebbeim there. I was exposed to tremendous thinkers, Rav Gordon, um, Rabbi Kenigsberg, just, uh, just very special people. Um, but I learned how to read Hebrew. I learned how to not be afraid of the Hebrew language um, because I knew that Bava Metziah B'Ian was not necessarily going to be the thing that kind of led me to invest myself into a lifelong quest of finding God and living my life according to those principles. And the benefit of being an OJ is that it's in Hari Yehuda. So it's one of the untouched elements of Eretz Yisrael where you have fields there. And Rav Asher Freund, Schusayaganaleinu, found Beit Meir to be a very unique place. He said that's where David Amelch found the inspiration to write Tehillim. Um, there was Breslov already there. There were the Kabbalah caves. So I found myself outside more, plus the skill of learning Hebrew. And I was chutzpahdik. I started reading the books that I wanted to read. I saw Maharals on the shelf, and I said, well, what's this? Um, and once I stopped being so afraid of the language, um, the books opened themselves up to me. And they were the ideas that kind of spoke to me directly. So it wasn't much of an effort. Once I started learning the Maharal, which was the original kind of insight that I had, um, it was kind of no looking back for me. Let me. I want. I want to let my co-host jump in. So let me ask you just one more question now. You described sure. being an OJ in the in the open fields. 
Have you ever planted a garden? Do you ever have the experience of putting something <laughs> in the ground and watching it sprout and grow? And, and I, I'm, I'm half joking, but I'm also very serious because right. I think much of the work that you do in the recovery community, which is what we should talk about also, is, is making people realize when they've hit rock bottom, maybe they're just a seed that's entered the ground and they're going to blossom. Their best is yet to come. So they, they tried to bury us. They mm -hmm. didn't realize we were a seed. So have you? Right. What, what's the mystical idea of eating that pepper? What did I experience tonight? Uh, the fruition of labor, uh, the purpose of creation, which is We look at the transgression of Adam Arishon as a descent away from the ideal. But in truth, it's the descent that enables the essence of what it means to be a human being. Bechira, choosing to experience loss, choosing to experience it, a non-understandable act of quite literally destruction, planting a seed as the tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Radzim point out, Zriya is Amuna. Zra'im is the seder of Amuna because what a person is doing is counterintuitive completely. I am giving away, I am burying, I am allowing a seed to die, and I am closing my mind off to any hope that that seed will become anything else. But it is specifically out of that encounter with hopelessness or the loss of self-sufficiency or powerlessness that throws a person into the space of emuna, which is that super rational aspect that we all have in the depths of our singularity. So planting, I believe, is is ultimately one of the greatest examples of what Panemia Satora is about, how destruction and absence actually are the birthplace, the very birthplace of growth. And this is clear from the sugyos of the Eitzadas and the Eitzachayim, it's clear when the Idra Rabbah, when the Zohar refers to the Chavraya, the friendship that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai had as Mechatzadechakla. They were gardeners. They were those who meant to thresh the field, to clear the field out from the overgrowths and the confusion and to see beyond the acts of destruction and see the potential of growth within it. So, I, I so think it was a mystical experience. You're validating me. It was a mystical experience I had, that pepper. I can't speak for mystical experience, but it's certainly the ideas. That our Mikubal speak about. Fantastic, Rabbi Moskowitz. Yes, yeah, so I want to. I want to just uh, first of all thank you so much, and um, I want to build upon what Rabbi Goldberg alluded to, which is your work in the recovery community. And while it's one thing to hear about your discussions of Rav Tzadok and Ishbitz and Panimia Satora in the context of Judaism and talking to a couple of rabbis on a Wednesday night, it's very different to relate those ideas to either non-religious or non-Jewish people who are going through some of the most traumatic, painful moments of their life. What gave you the confidence to do that, to translate the language of the Maral and Ishbitz and Rav Nachman, who always talk, who, so many of these ideas you've been alluding to really emerge from him. What gave you the confidence to take that language, take that vocabulary, and share it with people um, and translate into a vocabulary that other people are going to be able to understand? What gave you the confidence to do that? What gave you the impulse to do that? And what are some of the challenges that you encounter when doing that? So to just to answer the first question with a mushal, the Leshem Shabbat Achalomer of Shlomo Yashiv, uh, the Rebbe of Rav Kook, uh, the, grand, the grandfather of Rav Yashiv, who passed away recently in the recent few years, he doesn't enter into a discussion about the authorship of the Zohar Kadosh. He says very simply, he says, um, that, that truth testifies upon itself. So it's certainly not my own confidence. Um, I'm not a particularly confident person, as those who know me 
uh, understand. Um, you know, I, I, I live with a particularly strong level of self-doubt. Um, but the, the content, the words of our tzaddikim speak for themselves. And I, I believe in the words of our tzaddikim, and I believe in the power of the words of the tzaddikim, and, and that's where the confidence comes from. The ideas speak for themselves. Secondly, the translatability, and I love that you brought up the word translation, because translation is an idea that, that I am obsessed with. That translation is not simply the transition from one register of language onto another, but it is the impossible possibility of taking something from its original form, changing it, yet allowing it to maintain its kernel of essence. So it, it's it's a, a miraculous power of taking something that was one thing and allowing it to become something else, yet believing that the secret of unity persists. And and so when I found myself in, in this job in St. Louis, you know, thankfully my wife is from St. Louis and, and we moved here, unbeknownst to me, under the chuppah that was kind of written in. And it, uh, <laughs> it's, I can honestly say it's probably one of the greatest things that has happened in my life. Um, when I went to my Rebbe of Weinberger, I asked him and he said, run as fast as you can. And he actually said, he said, um, he said, you'll learn to give over Torah, um, you know, in a, in a place of, of quiet. Um, but I think that the translatability, so I found myself working with non-Jews, people who have never seen a Jew before. One of the most important things I heard in my practicum when I was working in the Bronx for the, for the criminal justice system for severe, severely addicted individuals who had committed significant crimes, um, I remember asking my supervisor at the time, who was not Jewish, whether I should wear my yarmulke and my tzitzis out. And she said, when the clients see you, they will see two things. They will see suffering, and they will see resiliency, and they will see faith. So three things. And from that point forward, I was unabashedly open about my faith and about my experience. And I have found that people are thirsty for content. People are not exposed to ideas that speak to the human condition. Forget about faith. Forget about fundamentals of faith or theology. Nobody has been given voice for the struggle to become part and parcel of the spiritual experience. And Hasidus and Kabbalah and the Vilna Gon, these things are axiomatic. The, you know, forget all my father sent me to Eretz Yisrael with Camus, Kierkegaard and, and Kafka and, and Siddhartha. Um, and so the end result of these books are the starting point of, of Hasidus, meaning the Baal Shem Tov was not pretending that everything was perfect. The Baal Shem Tov was trying to find light in a, in a world that was profoundly imperfect. And so I have found that the language of imperfection and validating it just speaks to a very inner point. And plus, they don't. my clients don't know the difference between Naaman of Bratslav, the 17th century mystic who spoke of psychological syndromes, or Abraham Maslow, or, you know, or any of the theorists, Freud, Lacan, all of the different philosophical or psychological language by making the names anonymous, the content speaks for itself. I want to ask you a question within the recovery. Within the recovery, it's very much on my mind. You alluded to it before in terms of uh, confidence or self-esteem. It's very much on my mind. We were talking before you came on about writing articles, put yourself out there. So, you know, we're writing articles. We speak. We put ourselves out there. And uh, the larger the platform, the more of a target you paint and the more of invitation of feedback you get, whether you want it or not, solicited or unsolicited. Um, desired or not desired. I woke up yesterday to a text from one of my daughters 
in Israel that said, Abba, did you see what so-and-so posted on her Instagram page about you? Uh, which I didn't, and I could care less, and I'm not checking, and my daughter didn't know firsthand either. Someone had something said to her. So why am I bringing it up with you? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, in recovery, I don't know if it's one of the steps, or but certainly the language is um, a phrase that I've always appreciated, but I'm trying to now decide is a part of the Jewish lexicon, which is, what other people think about me is none of my business. And there's such value to that, and I think there's such truth to that. Don't be consumed and don't mold yourself and don't try to conform to what other people want on the one hand. Build up your self-confidence, your self-esteem. What other people think about you is none of your business. And on the other hand, Judaism says we have an institution called Maris Ayin. You can't give the wrong impression. Visim Nikim Eshem Yisrael. You have to try to be above board because the impression we leave on others, it matters and it's important. So combining your recovery expertise and your Torah knowledge, what, what would you say? How does Judaism feel about that? How would you counsel me right now live in front of everybody? Should I, is what other people think about me none of my business? Or is it my business and I should care about it? This is the second week in a row that we've had a therapy session for Rabbi Goldberg. I'm just yeah. putting it out. There. The last week <laughs> Billy got was huge. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, okay. Okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> The, the the prayer, so to speak, that is utilized very often in uh, in in the rooms of twelve step is uh, is grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Rav Kook's Chusayogan actually in Midos Ra'aya has a, a very different type. It's possible that there was historical overlap, um, just rooted in the Christian theologian who actually penned that prayer possible. I am not claiming that that's true, but Rav Cook basically phrases it differently. Hashem, grant me the ability to fix what I can fix, to accept the things that I cannot fix, and to rest with the courage to know the difference. Um, so first and foremost, I would say, if a person is walking around like a lunatic, um, or and I'm not talking to you, Rabbi Goldberg, <laughs> um, uh, you know, if a person is walking around and, and making a mess out of themselves. So at that point, the, the avoida is not to be macabre and say, okay, I am for myself. I don't have to care about what anybody else is doing. These are the basic fundamentals of cognitive behavioral therapy as well. Uh, CBT does not say all of our thought patterns are true. They say that we have to check the evidence of those thought patterns, meaning checking evidence implies the possibility that perhaps everyone in this room is looking at me in a funny way. <laughs> but once, once we have clarified the distinction and it's something that we feel is essential to us and that we can't turn our attention from it, at that point, I believe the words of Rabbi Nachman are instructive in, in two places. Number one, in, in between the two volumes of the teachings of Lukutim Aran, there's a remarkable teaching of Echad Haya Avraham. Avraham was singular. Avraham was one, which meant that Avraham quite literally ignored every other aspect of existence other than his own inner dialogue with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I remember reading in a Mishpacha magazine very uh, many years ago um, that Rav Wolba son, who also works in addiction, used to come to Be'er Yaakov in his uh, army fatigues, I believe, or dress differently. And the yeshiva brachim would look at him and they would kind of say, you're embarrassing your father. And he once went over and he says, Abba, am I embarrassing you? And, and the response of Wolbi was, anything else I don't care about. I care about the letter of the law, whatever is the trapping or the form or the shape Basically, you do you. A person needs to be able to find comfort within themselves. Now, this, thankfully, this insecurity that we all have goes back to all of the tzaddikim. As the Rishalmi says that Rabbi, Aki, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, 
was struggling. I'm sorry, Rabbi Akiva was struggling. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, is it not enough that me and your creator recognize your greatness? Is it not enough that we recognize you? You don't need any other affirmation to feel valuable and validated about what you're doing. Rabbi Nachman says in the, in the fifth teaching of Lakuta Maran that, that a person needs to see it as if they are the only person in creation. And they once we recognize that we're the only person in creation, the next step very randomly is let me find the deficiencies in the world and let me learn how to fix them. So there are some basic steps there that Rabbi Nachman is taking for granted. Our job is to recognize that it's just us and Hashem. And once we recognize that, things are broken and let's fix them. As long as a person feels that what they're doing is bringing more light, the light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, kavod to Hashem, kavod to His Torah, then, then I think that the, the naysayers or the responses, the stupidity of people knows no bounds. Uh, you know, people will, people will say things that are ridiculous, and I find it safer to assume that it's the revelation of their own heart rather than the expression of the truth. Hmm. Just to push back a little bit on that, you know, just to build on it, that, that's, that's easy to write about in a safer. It's easy to talk about in a podcast. But, you know, Rabbi Gober, looking at you, you don't have that luxury. You don't have the luxury to say that what I'm doing is correct and everyone else is going to have to get in line or, you know, figure it out for themselves. As a, as a communal leader, your job is to either bring the people along and you do have to be concerned about public opinion, public policy, how things play out in the street. You can't just do everything that you want. You do have to be concerned about public perception a little bit. I remember a story I heard from Rav Fine Waxman when I was in high school that Rav Shmuel Shmelka of Nicholsburg, when he became a Kahilarov, and I'm not a Kahilarov, so I can't speak, uh, but, but I'll say this story, that before he brought the board into his office, he had them mount his walking stick on the wall. And when the board came in, they said, Rebbe, why do you have this? He said, just to let you know that I can walk out of here at any second. <laughs> <laughs> that is like a good that. policy. That's a good policy. It's your walking yeah. stick. Yeah. So, Rabbi Brody, please. Yeah, no, I was just wondering, you know, for, for decades, drug addiction was obviously something that was swept under the carpet in the Jewish community. And then I would say in the last number of years, we've been putting a lot of emphasis on it. There are a lot of people that are getting more involved. Rabbis like Rabbi Moskowitz, Rabbi Goldberg are talking about it regularly. And we're, we're, we're doing what we think is, is, is a better job. I'm just wondering, what do you see out there? Is the Jewish community doing better? Is it something which we've still got a long way to go? Is it getting worse? And we don't even know it. It's a, it's an incredibly important question. I'm also stuck it, with being able to answer it because I, I live in a small Jewish community right now. So just the sample size itself prevents me from kind of really grasping what is going on. Plus with COVID, I, I just don't see people anymore. So, right. um, but I think we're certainly doing a much better job in terms of recognition and acknowledging that a shikar is not a goy, and, and that addiction and alcoholism are very much entrenched within Jewish culture, both from a, you know, an active, sometimes exposure level of, of shul kiddishes and things like that, or a romantization of substance usage, as well as just the, the awareness of trauma and mental health, which certainly does not spare the Jewish people. It might be found more prevalently within the Jewish people. You know, we've been through some trauma. Um, so I think we're doing a really good job at beginning to be aware of the problem. I think there are people like Svi Gluck, Menachem Poznanski, different therapists. I mean, the the model, the OG, so to speak, is Rav Torsky, who was uh, just a, a, a kiddush Hashem on, on every imaginable level. 
Um, and, and so there's voices and there's insight. I mean, I, I, that's not an exhaustive list of the names, obviously, but we're, we're, we're no longer afraid of looking the problem in the face. But unfortunately, what seems to be continuously strong is the stigmatization of addiction, um, the stigmatization of acting out. Um, and that prevents people from paying attention until things get really bad. So obviously we react when people die, God forbid. Right. Right. Um, but we're not working from the ground level to understand um, where these issues emerge from. Because my, my bias my bias is that addiction does not start with drug abuse. Addiction starts very often with birth. Um, you know, addiction is a response to pain. Addiction is a response to wanting more. And sometimes those substances are the only thing that a person thinks will offer them more. But we have a, we have a reservoir of insight into recovery uh, above and beyond the 12 steps, if I can be so bold as to say such a thing. Um, I know that there are people who have wanted to add the 13th step of Ahava and Echad. I don't think that's necessary. Um, I think that the 12 steps are a gift. They, they provide a, a deep structure. If we properly understand the origins of the thought, including William James and Carl Jung, with all of their problematic orientations, I think we we can somewhat get over the fear that it's another religion. You know, AA was started as a response to religious programs. It was a breakaway from the Oxford group. So I think we have to be better at utilizing these skills. I think the Jewish community has become remarkable with regards to essay and sexual addictions, but nowhere near as strong with regards to education, prevention, and, and treatment in terms uh -huh. of, of drug addiction and alcoholism. We're actually very proud. We're going to be hosting a program soon and announcing Moshe Yachnes, who's a, a member of our community um, and, and also is really an expert in this area. We are collaborating, Bokerton Synagogue, with his program Onward Living, a nonprofit um, a facility for people um, who, are, who are in recovery. And we are partnering members of the community and, and re-entry back into the religious community, particularly for these members in recovery who who have left or who used to be part of a religious community. So we're trying to create this collaboration between the two, and we're excited about not only the success hopefully it'll have locally, but being able to replicate it more more broadly. But let me ask you, um, Rib Joey, so um, it, it, time doesn't allow us, and, and it'll be an injustice to even ask you to do this, but if you could succinctly at least give Rashi Prakim, just, just give some beginnings of an idea. So you're encountering a person, and it could be any one of us, in any period of our life where there's an emptiness inside us, there's a vacuum. There are people in life who realize that they have a lot of things and they have a lot of money and they thought they had all the things that were supposed to bring happiness and they're not happy. Um, so it could be precipitated by any kind of thing, but there's, a, there's an emptiness, there's a hole inside a person's heart. And they're trying to fill it with these fleeting pleasures and experiences of all the addictions from gambling to sex to alcohol to drugs. So you're going to fill it with something else. Where do you get started? How, how do you how do you show them the hole in the heart is coming? They can't fill it with something counterfeit. And, and what do you replace it with instead? Give us some sense. I think first and foremost, we have to validate the hole in the heart. Before we even begin discussion about how to fill it, we have to normalize the experience of feeling like we're always already lacking something. Because contrary to many other faith systems, Judaism does not perceive the idea of perfection as a concept whatsoever. Even prior to the Chet of Adam HaRishon, things were imperfect. That was the injunction to protect oneself, to be guarding. The implication is that we're susceptible to failure already. Not to mention the symptom, the act of contriction and shattering of the vessels. The birthplace of human experience is brokenness. Once we allow that experience to be validated, 
as a normative space in which to encounter Hashem, at that point, a bit, person begins to stop trying to fill the hole and actually allowing the void to be felt, to be mitmodeid with it, to face it unflinchingly. Many of our tzaddikim, Rabbi Nachman says that the world is a very, very narrow bridge, and the main thing is to not be afraid. A person does not need to be warned not to be afraid if there's no reason to be afraid. Rabbi Nachman was aware. He said, this is terrifying, guys. What you're going to do as human beings, being in this world where God is concealed or apparently concealed, is scary. And so that has to become the starting point of our encounter with Hashem. And so to not feel bad about not feeling, but rather to recognize that, okay, Hashem, you know, I'll, I'll play this game. I'm here in the Hastara Shabbatoch Hastara, the doubled concealment, the Choshech Kafulum Chupal, the doubled over darkness. So we validate that space. Then we begin to address the question of substance. The question, instead, the typical language that has been used towards maladaptive behavior is what is wrong with you that you don't recognize how destructive this is? How selfish are you that you continue doing this? It's the wrong question. The question needs to be, what is the substance providing you that you can't get naturally? And if the answer is, I don't feel anxious anymore when I'm under the influence of something, or I'm not scared anymore, or I don't feel alone anymore, so then we have direction. Then we know what we need to try and learn how to do in a sober way. Hmm. Something that I've always said to my clients, and I believe it deeply, addicts and alcoholics or potential addicts, we don't use, they don't drug themselves or numb themselves because they enjoy pleasure more than other people. They're in more pain than other people. And that pain is what propels a person to try and find relief. The model of AA, and I believe the model of the Torah itself, is that even the strongest substance in the world, let's say the illicit substances that people use, those things are more pleasurable, Mistama, than anything available. But that's still not big enough. And the answer is that you have to go to something even bigger. And the only thing even bigger is God. The only thing even bigger is ruchnius, is the idea of living with a presence of something in your life, of believing in something bigger than oneself or community or whatever it is. The Kutzker Rebbe said it most. The Kutzker Rebbe famously said that there's nothing more whole than a broken heart, that it's the breaking point that allows us to encounter the shards of ourselves, that allows us to rebuild ourselves, which is the avoda. And this is not taught nearly enough. This is not esoteric. This is the first parak in Masil Shisharim. Ramchal says, guys, you want to know what life is? It's a battle. You're already thrown into a raging war. Where did the war come from? Doesn't matter. It's just a battle. It's a struggle. The first thing that you have to do as a human being, learn how to care for things. Zahirut, be careful. Be aware that there are pitfalls and, and things that are difficult. But that's where Hashem wants us. Hashem, that's the teachings of our tzaddikim. Hashem wants us down here. Wow. Malachim couldn't receive the Torah because they didn't have Yitzhahara. They didn't know death. They weren't afraid. I'm going to follow up with you uh, offline because I, I have a Chavrus and Tanya. I was learning today with Rabbi Tauger, who's a, a great scholar in Chabad, has translated many of their works as a member of our community. And we've been learning Tanya. We're the 12th parakim. You know, the, the Benin versus the Tzaddik and the notion that 
in Hasidus, at least in Chabad, this view that the Avos were tzaddikim, the Alta Rebbe met that level of tzaddik. The tzaddik doesn't even have an instinct or an intuition, doesn't even doesn't even struggle. Whereas the Benoni, who makes all the right decisions, but struggles. And I said the whole institution of the tzaddik, or to read Tanakh as being filled with tzaddikim, makes them utterly and entirely unrelatable. So I'm I'm struggling with that. But we'll talk more about Tanya on on the on the other side. Let me ask you this as we're heading towards a close, and we're so grateful you're you're spending your evening with us. So Joey, you're learning, you're growing, you learn the language, you're out in the mountains of Ara Yehuda, why are you not in Chinuch? Why are you not in education? Why are you not in the rabbinate? How did you end up in recovery instead of what might have seen a more logical trajectory based on the path that you were you were then on? <laughs> when I, I, I was I was in the Smicha program in Landers and I couldn't stop learning Lashem, you know, so I couldn't master Batavachalov properly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's number one. You know, it just wasn't uh, doing it for me. I needed Rav Cook and the Lashem more. Um, I don't know. It's just uh, it, it's uh, the things that I'm doing, the the way of teaching that I'm engaged in are things that if you had asked me a year ago, two years ago, I would have never conceived of. And and Hashem has been incredibly kind to me and and graceful to me in terms of giving me space to express myself. Um, I, I struggle with responsibility. I can't, uh, I, you know, I can't burden. Uh, I can't burden other. I can't carry other people's burdens so much. I, I like sharing insight. I like sharing the insight of our tzaddikim and, and letting the words of the tzaddikim speak through me. Um, it's it's a it's a great question. I don't necessarily have a a wonderful answer for it. My family is is all rabban and my my grandfather's my my maternal grandfather, my paternal grandfather, whose yard site it is, who was a a kadosh venora. They were all machanchim. They were principals. My father had smicha. My brother is a, an assistant shul rabbi at Lincoln Square. My other brother was in chinach. It's always been a mahalach, but uh, but. But and I don't see myself as not being in chinuch. It's just a, a different space. My favorite teachings are for Rabbi Nachman. Teaching the world is sometimes more important than teaching those on the inside, um, because shining the kavod of the Torah and the kavod of Hashem into places that would not have otherwise seen it transforms darkness to to reveal an even deeper level of light. That's amazing, Joey. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you for all that you're doing. If people want thank to learn you. more, you could find Reb Joey. A lot of his shiurim are online. Um, in this half hour, forty minutes we spent together, I know you gave me enormous amount to think about. You inspired really all of us um, just by touching on the beginning of these conversations. People can learn with you and listen to you in such a real way online. And the beauty of the internet today is that you could have a stellar wherever you live. And St. Louis is a beautiful community. It's a wonderful community, especially if your wife is listening. It's a fantastic community. I wonder what's next for you. Do you bring your talents to a bigger community? Or is Adafka there where you have the space and the margin to think? From there, you can broadcast these beautiful, uh, quiet thoughts out to the world. Who knows? We'll have to have you back to, to learn what's next for you. But what's next for all of us is is to be able to continue to learn. So everyone's invited to learn with you. Where can they find you online? Um, so there's something called Shefa Podcasts, um, and there's a podcast set up uh, with Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld, which my very dear friend Zach Kamenetz set up for me, which is uh, probably eight or nine series of ten shirim each on, on different wow. on on different topics. Right now, I'm giving a series of shirim on the inner world of anxiety. Um, and trying to show how our tzaddikim spoke to that experience. Um, my writings, especially the writings on, on the tzaddik, Rav Yitzhak Meyer Morgenstern Shlita, are on academia, and if anybody wants any book. Um, my, my first published contrast is on, on the Sugi and Kabbalah called Utsina de Cardenusa, The Dark and Flame, the first instantiation of limitation. 
So I've always been talking about the same thing. So, but uh, really? so you can just Google my name. Really amazing. Thank you so much for being with us. Hatzlacha, tremendous success in all that you're doing. And thanks for, for bringing so much light into the world and our world. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. I now no you know why idea. people love him. You know, I don't want to embarrass him and put him on the spot by asking how old he is, or I should say how young yeah, how, he is. How old is he? But he, he? He's significantly younger than I am, and I'm a young man, so right. that makes him like an infant. He's like an adolescent. Um, but in all seriousness, he's, he's really a young man. Such wisdom and, and insight, and it's broadened by what he's doing. I think had he gone into kind of a typical chinach, it would be perhaps le- less experience with people in pain, and not to say that the average young person doesn't have, have what to share, but working in that recovery community is, is interacting with a lot of souls, sometimes in their most raw format and real format, which probably only adds to him, which is, which is amazing. Well, let me take Early something. Early 30s. And, my, and my friend, Reb Pesach, who's watching, Reb Pesach Summer, who's watching, who's a big fan of Reb Joey, says, Early 30s, it kills him. Does it kill you, by the way? What was your thought while you're listening to him? I felt grossly inadequate and pathetic. No, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, the vocabulary. <laughs> but, uh, but let me take something that he said and, and flip it on you now. Because oh, he, he asked him why he wasn't a pulpit rabbi. And he said, because he can't bear to carry other people's pain. Um, do you feel that as a pulpit rabbi, you sit, and again, I know you probably, other than your wife, probably better than anyone else here. Um, and I know that the majority of your day is is feeling other people's pain. It's dealing with other people's pain and suffering and listening to their stories and, and the tears. And does that ever overwhelm you? Do you ever, does that weigh on you? Do you ever take that home with you? Do you ever say to yourself, I just can't bear it anymore? How do you relate to that? Give, take our viewers behind the beam of what it's like as a rabbi to sit there and listen to stories all day long of sickness, of illness, of tragedy, and to, and to be able to also be a human being while listening to all those stories. I think we're out of time, so I'm not sure <laughs> to talk about it. Um, it's an important topic. I'd love to talk about it. It's actually been a, a pretty crazy few weeks, so I don't want to be my first time crying on behind the bima and not being able to say anything. There's a lot of people and a lot of pain, and and it's um, if you have a heart, you can't not feel that pain. You know, it's interesting. Shortly before we came on the air, I was meeting with uh, someone going through a lot, someone that I love very much. And um, we were talking and I said to them, um, Hashem, is, Hashem has been beyond kind to me in, in ways I could never properly express or express gratitude. But one of them is a capacity to compartmentalize. I don't know whether I, I learned it by necessity or it was just a gift that he's given me. And sometimes my wife asks it too, but you can go and, and, and you both do this. We do this regularly that you go from the funeral to the wedding, to the shiva house, to the bar mitzvah, from the deathbed to the, you know, to the to the bris, and um, you have to compartmentalize. That doesn't mean that when you're with each experience, you're not genuine and real, basher husham in that moment and in that experience. But if you don't compartmentalize, you'll be overwhelmed. And and the ultimate compartmentalization, whatever that word is, is when you come home, right? Because you have a wife and kids, and you have you. You owe it to your own neshama. If you are entirely consumed by the composite of every conversation and every experience, then you'll just crumble. You just you'll implode. You can't possibly. So it's really critically important for survival, but more than that, for for thriving, not just surviving uh, in your own life and with your own family. The ability, not in a callous way, 
but to compartmentalize and to say, that's real, right? We, we have a friend who's very sick and going through a hard time. And we love him. He's a special neshama. And, and, and you have a text exchange and, and it breaks your heart. And then there are 400 other texts coming in, right? One about the milk fork in the fleshic dishwasher. Another why rabbis hate their members that we haven't gotten vaccine for anyone. This is a real email. If you'd right. only stop behind the bima and try harder to get us all vaccines, you'd save lives. Right. We know you're sitting on the vaccines. You don't care enough to give them. So you have, you have a person who's, who's really, really struggling in the most real struggle that could exist, the most painful the most painful struggle that could exist. And then simultaneously, you're getting inundated with texts or emails or phone calls. So you've got to compartmentalize. you got to finish that text and then go respond to the other texts and then check in on your kid's homework and then celebrate the red pepper and then celebrate. And, right. and if you don't, if you can't compartmentalize, not out of callousness, but out of, out of, out of necessity, uh, you, you also all do it. We, we all do it to a certain extent. Then, then you can't. I, what I find, and then I want to hear from you, what I find is that, you know, the bad rabbis, I shouldn't say they're bad rabbis, they're great people and they're great rabbis. But w when you can't do that, so then the coping mechanism is just to never feel, is to never feel. Because if, if, I, can't, if I can't compartmentalize and put that aside, then I have to just not even really feel when I'm with you. It's a job, like doctors, I mean, it's not just rabbis who face this, therapists, people who work in recovery, doctors, just anybody with a feeling heart feels this. But doctors, you go from one, oncologists, right? We, we've spoken to, and Rabbi Moskowitz, you know this well, and you've spoken to doctors. Oncologists go from patient to patient to patient to patient. So they have 40 patients in half a day, and each one of them is, is a world in crisis. So what are you going to absorb all that? You, you, you couldn't be a doctor for more than a week. You'd be finished. So you have right. no. So on the one hand, you could be no bedside manner, callous. You care less about anybody. So then you're a terrible doctor. So how can you care, but also be able to just set that aside, put it on a shelf, because you need to now next care about the next thing. I don't know. What, how, how do you do it? Oh, that was beautiful. I mean, you know, the the part that resonated with me the most, and obviously I agree with you. And and for those who are listening and watching, you just saw firsthand what makes uh, Rabbi Goldberg so spectacular. But in all mm. seriousness, um, for me, the biggest challenge is, is coming home. You know, and you hit the nail on the head. Like, you could have a really challenging day. You could just have spoken to someone who had a diagnosis or just come from a from a deathbed and saying vidoy with someone. But when you walk in the door, your, your kids don't care about that. And they, they deserve a happy dad. They deserve an upbeat dad. They deserve 100% of you the second you walk in the door. And I really struggled with that at the beginning of my rabbinate, really struggled with it. And then the best advice I ever got was that before I come in the door now, I pause. And I just reflect upon where I'm about to go. That, you know, there's, there's the day, there's the chaos, there's, there's the experience I have during the day. But when I walk through that threshold and when I come into that house and my kids come running up to me and ask me how my day is, I better be ready for them. And I better have a smile on my face and be upbeat and ready to get on the floor and play with them or do their homework with them or just schmooze about the day. And, and that transition is the hardest transition, but it's the transition that keeps us normal. And I think it's what our kids ex not only expect of us, but, but they deserve from us as well. How do, you, how do you do it? How do you stay mindful to do that? How do you not rush in while you're on the phone right. and you're busy and you have no time and you're like, I just let me sit on the couch. I, how do you stay mindful to create that ritual to, to do that before you walk in? 
So I'm sure if my wife were here, she would give a rebuttal and say that there are days that I that I I'm not successful in that, and and I admit, and none of us are perfect, and and there are days that that you just can't do that. Um, but I really make cognizant effort before I come into the house to pause for a second, five seconds, twenty seconds, and just to gather myself and to say whatever it is on my mind, whether it's something that I have to write or something I have to take care of or someone that I just met with or something that's bothering me or a text message that just came in that's agitating me, and to take a deep breath and to really reflect upon the sanctity of what I'm about to come into, which is my home. And and that's the the most kadosh place outside of a shul, this most sanctified place I have on this earth is my home. Mm. And again, there are days when I'm entirely unsuccessful and, you know, we're real here on the show. There are days when I fail miserably and my kids will look at me sometimes and they'll say, daddy is in a mood. Something must have happened at work today. And you know what? Try to do better the next day. And I think that's like anything in life. You know, it's also interesting. You have to think about our wives also. They, they, they many times have the same experiences. They're on the phone. They're talking to congregants. They're talking to people in the community. It's like you go home, you walk in and and, and they're on the phone, you know, because they're busy. But, but you know what I think is so fascinating is that, again, maybe someone will, I'm not going to say we're the only ones like this because there'll be people that are going to write and they're going to say it's not true. But, you know, I don't know what other types of jobs there are. We, you don't know that next phone call, what's coming in. So you pick up the phone and, okay, it's someone in the hospital. Okay, it's the wedding. It's the baby. It's this amazing story. I'll just give you an example. I, I got a phone call from, from a relative of John Kroll on Monday, right? So he says he's got a... He, he's living in Israel. He's got a relative that just moved to Boca, just retired from Chicago. And he says he has your site on, uh, on, uh, on Thursday. No, not, no connection to the community, no connection to any Jewish community. Can we, can we get him uh, connected to the shul? He'll say Kaddish, maybe get him an Aliyah. So I end up uh, calling him. I call him right away. Wonderful doctor. Like he's just like the greatest guy. And he really wants to find out more about our shul. So I figured, you know, what? let me call the guy in Israel. That 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 sent him sent me the the information. And maybe there's you know the more you talk to someone, you need to find that connection. You know, if we're gonna feel feel like right. there's there's some some connection to the shul, what's that piece? So you're not gonna believe this. So I call the guy in Israel, and I, you know I'm just asking about his about his, uh, his relative that moved here. And he says, yeah, he's, he's interesting. I said he's he, he sounds like Sephardic, but I can't tell if he's Ashkenazi. You know, which minion can we kind of connect him with? He says it's an amazing story. Phil, you're gonna create, you're gonna hear this. You're not gonna believe it. He says. He says his family moved to America. They came from Egypt after the 67 war. So I said, you're not going to believe this. I just, I never met anyone from Egypt my whole life. I just heard a story this past weekend Shabbos. at a bar mitzvah. You know, this, this, I said, we're going to connect these two guys. I said, if you would have told me the story a week ago, nothing, I never would have thought anything of it. Right. You know, right. he's a doctor. This guy's a doctor. You know, sometimes that next phone, you don't know. And it's amazing. Sometimes know. the phone calls Hashem gives you are like, just, wow. How do you, how do you? You, you, made, you made a great point, Rabbi Brody, that really deserves to be um, repeated and focused on. And, and we're out of time, which is the story <laughs> of my life. Maybe my first book, that'll be the name. Be called, you're out of time. <laughs> That's going to be the first book. I'm out of time. Um, but you made such an important point. To a degree, we have the luxury that when we're making these phone calls, we have an office, we have shul, we have work. Our wives, who are rebitans of the community, are often counseling, helping, checking in, listening. I know my wife's been on the phone all day trying to help older people with getting right. vaccine appointments, and some of them got vaccinated. And, and they have to do it within the home. They don't have the luxury of stopping outside right. the door and saying, I'm going to leave it outside. They've got to balance that. And that's that's a whole segment with rebitans, how they balance it. That's complicated and difficult in, in their own way, how they do that. That's hard. We talk, all of them. I always say, you know, dinner time, phones off, afterward, phones off. And my wife said, it's very easy for you to say, 
right? You're on your phone all day. So yeah, you come home, you, you block off a half hour without a phone. She said, you know, for me, as you said, there's no bifurcation there. There's no like, oh, it stops here and it starts there. It all kind of right. blends together with the kids and the right. phone calls and the community and the appointments and, and the myriad of things that they're taking care of on a, on a constant basis. I will add one point, which is that uh, Rabbi Summer said on, on Facebook that every Smicha student should, should watch this. You know, what's, what's unique here, and again, I'm not touting your own horns. I'm really trying to give chizik to other people. What, what I find amazing about my personal job, and I know Rabbi Brody, you'll, you'll validate this as well, is that we have each other. I speak to many of my colleagues who go through the experiences that we just articulated, the, the, the sadness, the pain, the bearing, the, the suffering of other people, and they do it alone, right? They don't have someone who, you know, they have their spouse, but they don't always want to bring that home to the spouse. We are enormously fortunate that we have each other. And obviously, we always yes. maintain confidentiality and when it's not appropriate, we won't tell each other the names or the circumstances, but the ability to call someone in the same community who can empathize with you, who can understand what you're going through, who can give you some advice when you need it is absolutely priceless and something that I'm grateful for on, on a daily basis. Another one of the great, great blessings in our life. Absolutely. So um, thank everyone who's still with us for what was, I really think, a really inspiring for me, you know, Rib Joey and, and, and our conversations. I want to again thank Nini and Donnie Ross for sponsoring and again wish a heartfelt refuah shleima to Yaliora Basara, to Rachmiel Daniel Ben Tova Basha. They should have a complete, speedy, and painless recovery. We should hear only good right. news from them and about them. I'll just end. It was a very serious episode, so I'll end on a light note. Lest anyone think all this goes to our head. Lest anyone think that the rabbinic ego gets inflated by the wonderful feedback that we get, somebody decided to comment on a bunch of old podcasts, old episodes of Behind the Hema, <laughs> and, and, and wrote on almost every episode, these guys are Larry, Moe, and Curly. And that was their great, that was their great feedback on Behind the Behemoth. Who's, who's, they didn't who's, say who's who. Who's yeah, yeah. One we of us kind of disappointed. But basically, they decided to write... Yeah, they were not writing it out of love. Let's just put it that way, that yeah. these guys are the three stooges, Larry, Moe, and Curly. We're still figuring out who's who. But on that note, we'll uh, thank everybody. Thank you, our sponsors. Thank you, Rib Jerry Rosenfeld, for joining. Until next time, everybody stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the beamer.